We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this episode, we have in studio Kevin Lin, who's Executive Director of Progressives for Immigration Reform. And we're specifically going to talk about one of the projects of this organization, which is called Doctors Without Jobs, like Doctors Without Borders, except it's Doctors Without Jobs. Kevin, thanks for coming in. If you could tell us why you're focusing on these higher skilled issues, because there's also a project called U.S. Tech Workers that you are involved with. Again, both of them, not the low-skilled immigrant issues, immigrant competition that we always talk about as a real problem, but these are higher skilled issues. And if you could sort of, you know, why that and then talk a little more specifically about the doctor's issue. Absolutely, Mark. And it's a real pleasure to be here today with you. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Right. Well, you know, it's funny. When I first got involved with PFER, I was one of the founding board members back in 2007 and That's 2008. Progressives for Immigration Reforms is a shorthand way of saying yeah, it. PFER. PFER. Yeah, PFER. Right. Because it's funny. When I'm on a Twitter space, people know me as Mr. PFER. Okay. I just oh, Mr. PFER's on. Here we go. Right. So yeah, Progressives for Immigration Reform. So when we looked at really two aspects, the environmental aspect, mm-hmm. you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And here we are in the United States with the second largest per capita carbon footprint in the world. So as you increase the number of Americans, you're overall increasing the impact on climate and the ecosystems that we rely on to sustain us into the future. And then we also looked at labor. And we were particularly looking at the, as you had mentioned, the lower skilled workers on the spectrum. because. You look at the push from the southern border, you're looking at jobs, whether they're janitorial, construction, which is a higher skill, but they still just blue collar still job. blue collar blue collar jobs. And although I'll be on the first say there is no such thing as a no skilled jobs, there are jobs with lower skill thresholds and certifications and things like that. Now, when I took over as executive director in 2016. I began to get exposed to the employment visas, programs like H-1B, right. L-1, optional practical training, which is a employment authorization document. And that's when we founded U.S. Tech Workers to address the displacement of Americans. I can give you several examples like Disney, SoCal Edison, Northeast Utilities, Abbott Labs, Recently, Vanguard and going on now, CSX Technologies. So these are places that are laying off their U.S. IT workers and replacing them with farmers. Yep, have laid off. And essentially what the loophole is, they will outsource these departments, typically their IT, but also accounting, other back Hmm. office operations to H-1B visa dependent companies. And 
You know, you'll see names like Emphasis, Tatak Consultancy, Mild Alma Mater, Ernst & Young, Deloitte & Touche, or Deloitte as it goes by now, and many others. And what they do is they bring in a large number of H-1B visa holders, of which over 74% come from one country, India, mm-hmm. and they will outsource these departments. And so, like in the case of Disney, the American workers, to get their severance pay, had to train their H-1B visa (laughs) replacement in order to be qualified to get their uh, severance package. So we looked at that, and I was doing a protest in front of the White House, and a fellow walked up to me, Dr. Doug Medina, a graduate of Georgetown Medical College. He introduced me to what was going on with doctors and residency programs. So in the case of Doug, Dr. Medina, he had gone through Georgetown Medical School, graduated in good standing, had passed all of his U.S. licensing medical examinations, all three of them, and did not get matched for a residency program. And so what is the resident? How does that fit into the medical training thing? Absolutely. So you go to medical school, you pass your tests, then what's the residency? Right. The residency is considered postgraduate education, PGY1. And what happens there is, depending on the specialty, if it's general practitioner, you might have a residency that goes two years, one to two years, but surgery could be seven years. Mm -hmm. The important thing to remember is, without completing a residency program, you cannot be licensed. If you are not licensed, you cannot practice medicine in the United States. So even if you've graduated medical school, passed your qualifying exam, so you're a physician, Correct. You just can't practice medicine right. unless you get this residency. Exactly. You'll okay. have an MD with your name, but you will not be allowed to practice medicine in the United States. Now, to look at the scale of this problem. Well, first of all, what's the problem? In other words, why are these people not getting residencies? Is it because some of them are going to foreign doctors? Is that the point? There are several factors. You know, If you just looked at graduates of U.S. medical schools, not mm-hmm. looking at U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents who are graduates of foreign medical colleges. Right. This year, in the spring of 2022, we're looking at about 1,431 graduates of medical, U.S. medical schools did not get a residency. Out of roughly how many? I mean, what kind of share is that? That's about 7.2% of a total of 19,866 that had applied for residencies. Now, This is where the heartburn comes in, (laughs) because at the same time that these 1,431 graduates of U.S. medical schools didn't get a residency, 4,356 foreign-trained physicians got residencies at U.S. teaching hospitals. So twice as many foreign- Correct. Now, none of these are Americans who went to school in Grenada or something like that. Correct. This is a different, you're talking about- Foreign citizens who are trained overseas. Correct. Because if we were to consider the U.S. citizens who had, let's say, gone to Grenada, other foreign schools, or a school in Belgium, we're looking at 2,143 that applied that didn't get matched. So when you add that to the number- Oh, you add that to the other 1,700 number? Yeah, the other 1,400 number. That's how many U.S. citizens go without being matched every year. And those percentages are pretty consistent because, as I mentioned, 
you know, when you look at the U.S. graduates, that's about 7.2%. But the prior year, 6.3%. The year before that, 6.1%. So it's consistent. It's around the same. Right. It's yeah. almost like it's there's an accepted breakage in the system. And recently, I testified before Congress and kind of got into it with the head of the Association of American Medical Colleges because they want to dismiss this and say, well, you know, we as an organization don't decide who gets matched. That's really up to the programs. We just create the infrastructure that allows them to go out and interview and apply and things like that. Okay. And so this is for the annual sort of the annual beauty contest, the national residency match, Correct. which happens in the spring. Correct. And that ended relatively recently, yes, right? Yes, in yeah. April. Right. right. That's okay. when that takes place. Right. And this is the kicker. So these residencies, what a lot of people don't know is that these are all taxpayer funded. All of them? All of them. Wow. And that's roughly 150000 a year. When you consider the salary that the doctor will make while they're in their postgraduate education, as well as all the overhead that goes with it. So we're right. looking at about 150000 per person. And the majority of the foreign physicians that come over mm -hmm. for the residencies come on the J-1 visa, which is a cultural exchange visa. Unbelievable. <laughs> so technically, they have to return home. Many right. don't. They find a way to stay in. You know, for instance, in 2020, where I have the data from, 3,508 labor condition applications were filed for the H-1B visa program. Okay. Of that, 3,004 were approved. So add that to that number of 4,356 or roughly 4,000 foreign physicians that come in every year. That's several thousand foreign doctors that come in. And yet at the same time, we have easily over 20,000 because it's cumulative every right, year. Right. You know, people will reapply. But as one doctor told me, if you don't match your first year, you're kind of three day old meat. Right, right. Yeah. It's more difficult. It's almost like, you go from that 7.2% to like 50% chance of, you know, not matching. Not getting it, yeah. So, but I mean, basically, we're talking about comparable numbers. In other words, every American who gets turned down for a residency, that residency is taken by a foreign doctor. I mean, it's not like there's only 10 or 15 foreign doctors. Right. We're subsidizing the displacement of these American physicians, qualified physicians. Absolutely. Now- you go back to the 1950s, 1960s, right? when there really were more residency positions than there were doctors being produced in the U.S. Right. So the foreign trained physicians made up for that. I see. So they weren't taking spots from anybody at that Correct. Point. Now they are. Now they are. And it's pretty obvious what's going on. What they get is someone who comes here on a visa, is happy to, to be here, and they're easily exploitable. and Ultimately, if they come to work permanently in the U.S., they'll probably be on some kind of employment visa after that. And again, that, that'll be several years. For instance, as you know, with the H-1B visa program, let's just say they go from J-1 to an H-1B mm -hmm. because about 5,000 H-1Bs who are doctors are renewed every year. Okay. So they have essentially an indentured servant for three to six years. Or even longer. Or even longer, yeah, right. depending on the, uh, the country quotas. Right. Now, interestingly enough, I would have thought that with COVID, 
And there was that point where there was an embargo on international travel mm -hmm. to many countries. Here in the U.S., we had Title 42. Embassies were shut down overseas. Right. Now, you would have thought. So what happens in the spring, we have this, essentially, it's a rush that goes on. That is the National right. Residency Match Program. And then on July 1st, all the residents need to report to their position. So the foreign okay. trained physicians need to be here. Ah. Now, I would have thought during COVID, that would have been the opportunity for these residency program directors to go back down to that list and find Americans and fill those positions. Right. But they didn't. They just chose to wait it out. Wow. And even though they risk possibly losing those funds on for follow-on years. So it tells me that there is a bias there. Hmm. And can we claim country of origin discrimination? There was one lawsuit in the past on this, and I think there's certainly grounds for it. The problem is you're taking on a multi-billion dollar industry. If you were to sue, you're If saying. you were to sue. Right. Because you wouldn't just be facing one law firm, you'd be facing several law firms. And that's what I've been told. Interesting. But I mean, a lot of people who are listening to this, okay, these Americans didn't get picked for the residency program. And these foreign doctors basically are taking their slots, which the Americans helped pay for through their tax money. But aren't the foreign doctors just better? Are the American physicians who aren't getting matched for a residency, isn't that kind of proof that they're not up to snuff? You know, when I was doing the background work on creating doctors without jobs, I sat with a hospital administrator. He actually administered two hospitals. And he said, Kevin, if you think that the match program is anything more than a glorified rush, you're fooling yourself. Like a fraternity rush. Exactly. Yeah, okay. I mean, what do they look for? Well, there's a lot of ways to disqualify someone. They can all say grades. For instance, what are your test scores? Right. So if you are an American citizen who studied in the Caribbean, you're considered an international medical graduate. Okay. So you and all the other international medical graduates apply to the ECFMG. And it's a, Which is what? It's a program that credits doctors from abroad to be able to be eligible for the match. So basically, they pass the test. They pass the- So there is a test for these foreign medical correct. graduates. Mm -hmm. And so that could be an Indian doctor in India or an American doctor who went to Grenada for medical correct. school. Correct. Either way. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the thing is this, if it's all about the test scores, what's the value of a medical education here in the U.S.? I mean, if you can go to India and get a medical degree for a fraction of the cost here in the U.S., take a year or two off to study for USML. Because remember, here, American graduates, they're in medical school through the match. So okay. they, they don't have the luxury of taking off a year and just studying. And I know this goes on with many international medical graduates. Mm -hmm. So they don't have that luxury. So if it's just about the test scores, then why not just get a degree for a little bit of money somewhere else and come back, cram for the test and do well and get in? Right. And just recently, there was a bill that attempted to get passed in the Arizona legislature called S-131. And essentially what they wanted to do, it's called International Medical Graduates Licensure Program Accreditation. And what they wanted to do 
was just say, look, we have a doctor shortage. If you are from one of these several countries and you have passed your residency, you've been practicing for two years, you can just come here. You can skip the ECFMG, that accreditation, and we will put you right to work. Now, interestingly enough, these are all the five I type countries. These are all first world countries that they're drawing from. Australia, Hong Kong, Ireland, Israel, New Zealand, Singapore, South Africa, Switzerland, United Kingdom, and Canada. Okay. We don't see India there. We don't see. <laughs> so I think, I mean, the thinking there is that those doctors are basically trained on a similar level. Correct. Right. Okay. So what does that tell you about a bias in the system? You tell me. Well, what it does is it tells me that America, instead of making the investments, instead of increasing the number of medical schools, instead of increasing the size of the current medical programs, as well as increasing the number of residencies, right? what they would rather do is siphon off doctors that are cheaper and exploitable from other countries. I mean, we look at it, you know, one country's gain is another country's loss. Sure. So when we pull a doctor into the United States, let's say they come from sub-Saharan Africa, and that's an incredible loss for that country. That really represents a brain drain. So our loss becomes their gain. Right. No, and, our gain becomes their loss. Oh, our gain <laughs> becomes their loss. <laughs> but it's exactly. a small gain for us and a big loss for them. Exactly. And I put a number to that when I testified before Congress recently. So the benefit to the United States from luring a physician, let's say from sub-Saharan Africa, is about $846 million. When you wow. Look. Okay. However, the sending countries from there lose about $2.1 billion in their investments made in those doctors. Right, right. And it's not like Americans don't want to become doctors. Applications to medical colleges have never been higher. Applications to nursing programs have never been higher. But they don't want to hire Americans. And another thing that happened is we have frozen the number of residencies at the levels in the mid-1990s. Wow. Okay. And this is a government spending issue. In other words, it's Congress that decides this, right? Correct. Interesting. Correct. And there is an attempt now to pass a bill called the Resident Physician Reduction Shortage Act. The uh, bill number in the House is H.R. 2256. And there are 197 co-sponsors. And what it would do is, over the course of seven years, add 14,000 new resident positions. Mm -hmm. My issue with the bill, I love the bill with two exceptions. One, it needs to prioritize Americans and lawful permanent residents. Because if they add those slots, what you're going to see is just a greater number of foreign foreign trained physicians coming in here. Right. And the other thing is where we have an acute shortage right now is in general practitioners. So Mm -hmm. it should definitely prioritize creating general practitioner positions in underserved areas. And isn't that one of the arguments for the importation of these foreign doctors is they're more willing to work out in the boondocks somewhere as a general practitioner than Americans are? Well, interestingly enough, before I did my background research on doctors without jobs, I believed exactly that. Mm -hmm. That is not the case. I have talked to hundreds of unmatched doctors who would literally, they're going down and working for almost nothing in Puerto Rico. There's a program in Puerto Rico 
that will take them in. It's not quite a residency program, but if they pass it, they can practice in Puerto Rico as well as at federal hospitals. And they're oh. earning almost nothing. They will happily go to any underserved areas. Missouri has an assistant physician program that doesn't pay a lot of money, but it's an opportunity to get clinical time. Right. Many doctors will work for nothing in that year when they don't match till the next match right. just to get the clinical time on their resumes. So it really isn't about, well, those Americans just don't want to practice right. in, you know, Bunston, Missouri area or something like that. No. Interesting. So like all the other jobs American won't do lines, this also is a myth. Absolutely. Interesting. So to clarify one point, are the Americans most likely to lose out on this, those who study at overseas medical schools? Yes, because that match rate is roughly, if we look at it, U.S. citizen students, graduates of international medical schools, according to the NRMP data, roughly... 59.5% match and 40.5% okay. don't match. Wow. So that's a big Correct. disparity compared to the overall number. Right. Interesting. And so why why do you think that is? I mean, are those schools just not as good? Or is it sort of more of a social issue that they're not considered the cool kids if they went to medical school in Grenada? I think it's more a social issue. You have to believe that there has to be a ranking among medical colleges. I mean, sure. if you go to a Harvard, for instance, versus University of Chicago, you'd like to think, well, there's something to be said for that caliber. Right. But in terms of saying, well, you just don't qualify for licensure, I think is ridiculous, mm -hmm. uh, particularly given the shortages. And also, as was pointed out to me by a number of doctors, because of insurance issues here in the U.S. and other liability issues, American doctors really don't get a lot of hands-on until their residency. Mm -hmm. Whereas foreign-trained physicians do much more hands-on during their medical education. Interesting. And moreover, another thing I found out was in Europe and other schools, the weed outs really happen during that four years of medical education. Whereas here in the U.S., the selection process is really on who gets to get in, where oh. several thousand will apply for medical school, but only a few hundred will get in. Right. So we're very select on who we let in, but perhaps not really weeding out. If someone, for instance, if there's an issue and someone feels that they might have a problem being a doctor, Perhaps if you identified that by their sophomore year. Right. So you can point them in other directions. Sure, sure. And not, again, go through four years, graduate in good standing, pass your exams, and then get straddled with a lot of student debt. Right. And not have a job. Wow. So what do American doctors, their MDs, who can't work as MDs, what do they do? I mean, are you, you were, I assume you're, you all are in contact with some sure. significant number of those people. And that's the issue. Many are, they're simply overqualified. These skills don't transfer over. Like they can't, I'm a medical doctor, I'll just work as a nurse, nurse practitioner. Doesn't work. Doesn't work because they have to go through and get certifications, a year-long program. All of these things, there are a handful of positions like research positions that might be open to a medical doctor, mm -hmm. but it's a very, very specialized education. Mm -hmm. And the skills may transfer, 
but the credentialization doesn't. So they would have to go back for more schooling at the end of the day. So what is the solution here? Because obviously we have a shortage of doctors and we're not, you know, seems like intentionally not creating enough doctors, but in meeting some of the shortage by importing people from abroad instead of addressing the actual reason for the shortage. So what do we do about this? Yeah, I think number one, there has to be a realization that this country, you know, it's so funny because, and we've joked about in the past, wow, what's the solution? Well, more immigrants. It just seems to be. <laughs> right. That's my joke on Twitter is solution, more immigration. Right. They, because we become addicted to it. Right. And what that means, it prevents us from making the hard economic choices to do the investments for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, we need to invest in expanding current medical programs. We need so to- medical school. Medical words, school. More medical school slots. More medical yeah. school slots in existing, but also create new programs. Are you involved in any way or with people who are looking at ways of changing medical education? In other words, it seems to me that People are just spending way too much time at school in general, whether they're lawyers or anything else. I mean, are there ideas of sort of alternative medical training that is, I don't know, more accelerated or less bureaucratic or something? There are certainly other programs out there. And unfortunately, the whole hospitalist system is really set up anymore not to keep people healthy and create positive outcomes. It's to generate profit and maximize profit. Right. So what they'll do is they don't want more doctors. They want doctors to be more managers who are working with assistant physicians. They'll create different categories of healthcare workers that are more specialized, higher skilled. However, what they don't want to do is create highly skilled doctors. And myself, I've always had better experiences when I've gone and sat down with a well-trained doctor. Right. So I don't think less training or accelerated training is a solution. Again, we need to make these investments. And the healthcare outcomes of America are not that good. And I think so many issues people have before they become really problematic, if there were a general practitioner, a skilled doctor in that community, and they had easy access to them, they could say, well, look, we need to look at your diet right now. Because if you don't, you know, 10 years from now, you're going to be diabetic and, you know, right, dialysis. Right. And what we'd find is these investments, I think, would pay off in much lower healthcare costs and better returns when it comes to good outcomes. So as an alternative to importing doctors, you're suggesting first we should have more medical training slots yes. and then more federally funded Correct. residency slots as well. So is the point to sort of get back to where we were before, where we had more residencies than students? Yes, absolutely. And there's a reason for this. And I had shared at a presentation to several congressmen last year. We are looking at, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, physician workforce is expected to only grow 4% over the next 10 years. However, this is only a fraction of what's needed because we're going to be looking at a shortage of 140,000 physicians by 2030. Mm -hmm. So that's less than 10 years away. Why? Because a lot of doctors who are older are retiring, right. and we're not bringing enough into the profession. And so the argument of the lobbyists is that's why we should bring even more foreign doctors in. Absolutely, and create an even larger brain drain. You know, if you think we have a doctor shortage here, I mean, they have a huge doctor shortage in India. Right, that became right. very apparent during COVID. 
And you look at these countries, again, they make huge investments for these doctors and only to have them lured away to here and other developed countries like the United Kingdom. Right, right. Interesting. So this would be a whole new direction, but I, so I don't want to start a new podcast episode. <laughs> but have you thought about looking at the nursing side of this too? Because that's a significant issue. Like the UK, I don't know if there's any British nurses left in the United Kingdom. And this whole issue of nurse training and all the rest of it really does have a nexus with immigration too. Absolutely. You look at many hospitals and for instance, a friend of mine, his wife works at a hospital in Pasadena, California, and the vast majority of nurses and doctors there are foreign born. Many of the nurses come from the Philippines. In fact, there are people who get a medical doctor degree in the Philippines and they come here to the U.S. to work, work as a as nurse. nurse. Interesting. Again, this is displacement. These laws of supply and demand, they are universal and you can't escape them. So I have a number of nurses in my family and I was talking to my niece and last year was the first time she's a home health care nurse. Okay. Last year was the first time in several years that she got a raise. Wow. Now, okay. how can this happen? Right. It happens because you just keep amping up the supply of the nurses in With that foreign field. nurses. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So you said recently you testified about this. When was that? What was the, uh, for people, if they want to look up your testimony? Oh, sure. I testified in front of the Immigration and Citizenship Subcommittee and on the house of the House of, of the Representatives. House, correct. Yeah. When was that? What's the date? Uh, that was back in May. Okay. Well, this is still May. So it wasn't. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, sorry. Back in April. That's April, where, okay. yeah. Last, boy, um, time flies. Yeah. But it was interesting that the title of the hearing was Is there a doctor in the house? The role of foreign physicians in U the U.S. medical system. Right. And it was an obvious attempt by Zoe Lofgren and who's the Democratic chairwoman of the right, subcommittee. She's a Democratic chairwoman of that subcommittee, yes, right. to set up the kill shot to bring in more foreign trained physicians. Right, right. And I'd like to think that my testimony there made that hearing radioactive for them. Okay. Because well, yeah. we hit them really hard because typically I was invited in by uh, Congressman Tom McClintock of California. So you're the token Republican witness. Correct. Because right. as you know, it's the minority party gets to produce one witness as the majority has three. And right. they also kind of run the tables there. Yep. And typically what they'll do is they will just ignore the testimony of that Republican witness in sure. this case. However, they couldn't. They could not help but refer to me several Interesting. times. Interesting. And I actually mixed it up a little bit with Dr. Stark, of the, who's head of the AMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges. In fact, Congressman Biggs said, gentlemen, gentlemen, take it outside. You know? <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Uh, well, that's the most you can expect for a minority party witness is that they actually pay attention to you. Has Doctors Without Borders ever complained about the name? No, they haven't. No, they haven't. Perhaps if we had uh, a French translation of yeah. Doctors Without yeah. Jobs. Médecins sans emploi um, is what it would be yes. yeah. <laughs> instead of Médecins sans frontières. Interesting. So is there a website for Doctors Without yes. Jobs specifically? What's the website? Doctorswithoutjobs.org. No hyphens, anything. No, just, no yeah. hyphens or anything. Just okay. doctorswithoutjobs.org. There's great material on there. And the really wonderful thing about this is because we are a 501c3, we can only work on policy and things like that. It's a that. nonprofit. It's a words. nonprofit. Right. But organizations are rising up among the doctors. For instance, there's the Alliance for Medical Graduates. 
they have held over 300 meetings with legislative aides hmm. on this topic. Interesting. Okay. And it's they're just brilliant. So the problem is for those that don't match, there is a stigma. They mm-hmm. blame themselves. It's sure. like so many people who lose a job, they blame themselves. What did I do? What? How did I mess up? And they'll spend two, three years and they don't realize that it's the system that hoes them over. They play by the rules. They paid the money. They spent the time. They put the effort in. And I mean, just to make sure people understand, they passed all their classes and exactly. passed their examinations. In other words, these weren't people who flunked out. They made it all the way through and then they were not picked. And, you know, it seems to me that even if there were enough residency slots funded by taxpayers, some people would still not make it. But the point is then it really would be on them rather than what we're seeing now where essentially government policy is creating failure where it wouldn't exist otherwise. Correct. And other things that would be nice to see changed is we need much better demographic data. For instance, we know the composition of a class that enters medical school. Okay. Break down by gender, race, income of the family, the household. Right. We don't know anything about who matches. Isn't that strange? Mm, That is interesting. Yeah. For instance, you know, let's say we found a hospital where the majority of the physicians come from one country, Nepal. Right. And you got to wonder, wait a minute, in this supposedly objective system, how does that happen? Interesting. And this is a federally funded program, so it's not as though federal government couldn't just say you have to report this data. Absolutely. Because again, we, we know the data for who goes into medical school. Why can't we have this data for who doesn't match? And if a school has a good match record, let's say under 3% or mm-hmm. 1.5%, they'll advertise that. If they don't, they're not going to advertise. Interesting. Interesting. Anyway, let's finish it there. It's Kevin Lynn speaking about doctors without jobs. Is it dot com? Dot org. Dot org. Okay. So it's doctors without jobs, all spelled out, no punctuation, doctorswithoutjobs.org to learn more about this issue where essentially fully qualified American physicians are prevented from practicing medicine because the taxpayer-funded residency program is basically stacked against them. So if there are new developments on this at some point in the future, uh, Kevin, we'll have you back to talk about them. Well, I'm hoping in 2023, when it's match season, we see a big difference in this. Because I think I was able to, you know, certainly influence the minds of the congressmen that I testified in front of that this is a big issue. And hopefully... You know, uh, something like the uh, Resident Physician Reduction Shortage Act will pass that will prioritize American graduates. And it seems like this isn't really a partisan issue necessarily. There's no reason Democrats couldn't get behind this and the president couldn't sign it. Absolutely. In fact, Democrats, as I said, there's they make up the majority of the co-sponsors of the bill. Oh, really? Okay. But there are Republicans who've signed on to it. And I've talked to a number of Republicans who have called me to get more information on it. And they said they would get on board if a clause were inserted that prioritized Americans. Interesting. Okay. Well, maybe next spring we'll have you back to see how next year's match goes. In the meantime, again, doctorswithoutjobs.org is the website to check out more about Kevin Lynn's work. And thanks for coming by. 
Mark, as always, thanks so much for having me. You have a great day. Thanks. And finally, last week I was in Hungary for a conference, and I took the opportunity to take the train out to Hungary's border with Ukraine. It's a four-hour train ride out there. There's only one rail crossing, the town of Zahoni. And there wasn't that much going on. Obviously, the real drama had been earlier in the war with, you know, thousands of people a day coming through there. But it was still informative. On the train there, I spoke with a Ukrainian woman in my limited Russian and found out she was actually going back to Kiev. She's from Kiev. She had her two little kids with her, big, gigantic pieces of luggage. One of them I helped her with was too big even for me. Uh, and a couple of friends of hers, other women with kids. And they were returning to Kiev, and there was a whole group, once I got there, of people who were also going back into Ukraine. I spoke with a Red Cross volunteer there who said that he had spoken with a Chinese student from China who was studying in Kiev who was going back, and he said, you know, what are you doing? The war is still going on. He said, well, I got my exams to take. And there was even... This same Red Cross volunteer said someone was even going back to Donetsk, which is a city in the east where the war actually is. And when he asked what they were thinking, he said, well, there's, you know, fighting in the villages and stuff, but where our home is, it's not that bad. So they were going back. Now, there were also some people still coming the other way, in other words, into Hungary from Ukraine, but not that many of them. And what it really highlighted for me is the importance of helping displaced people in the region that they are. In other words, if the Ukrainians were crossing directly from the country, they were fleeing into Hungary and Poland and Romania and Moldova. And then some of them had relatives or what have you elsewhere in the European Union, but they were in the European Union. They were in that political unit and were free to travel. In fact, even before the war, Ukrainians had visa-free access to the EU. But the point is that they were much more likely, because they were right there, to go home when the immediate emergency, as they saw it, had passed. Those Ukrainians who have made it all the way to the United States, who've flown to Mexico and crossed the border, turned themselves in and been let go, they're not going to be going back. You know, this Ukrainian woman I spoke with, with her two obstreperous kids and her big pieces of luggage, if she had actually gone to Mexico and crossed the border into the United States, there's very little likelihood she would be turning around and going back once the Russian army retreated from Kiev, which is what obviously sparked a lot of this. Kiev's no longer under direct threat. I mean, there's all kinds of damage. The Russians did all kinds of beastly things, but the war has basically retreated from Kiev. Now, in this border town, the Hungarian border town of Zahoni, the various humanitarian volunteers said, you know, they're still keeping their infrastructure there. There's a big uh, tent that's where they prepare hot meals. There's a shelter and a former school that's empty now, but they still have it all set up with a medical room and clothes that were donated for people. All of that stuff is still there because you never know what will happen. The war could start up again in the West. Any number of things are possible. But 
The point is that helping refugees where they are rather than resettling them in the United States should be our primary objective. There are some people that probably are going to want to resettle in the United States, but for the most part, we should be focused on assisting the countries where people have sought their initial refuge. And, you know, for Ukrainians, that means the EU. And in fact, this administration has been focusing mainly on providing assistance to people where they are. In, you know, for Syrians, that would mean helping people who are in, you know, Turkey and Lebanon and other neighboring countries. For the Rohingya from Burma, that means helping the ones that are helping people in Bangladesh where they fled rather than picking them up and flying them to the United States. It really did underline to me that we need to fundamentally rethink the discussion about refugees so that resettlement in the United States is an absolute last resort for only a handful of people who literally have no other options because otherwise it just becomes another avenue for immigration to the United States rather than dealing with the humanitarian problems of a much larger group of people as opposed to selecting a handful of lucky winners, as it were, to bring to the United States and devoting resources to them who otherwise would be able to help a larger number of people in the region that they are. That's it for this week's Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, and if you subscribe to this podcast on any of the platforms that allow you to rank or rate or comment, please do so. And if not, please feel free to just directly email me at msk at cis.org. I hope you'll tune in next week.